We're bringing in a new sermon series that goes on the book of Daniel. So this video will provide you a good in-depth look at that book together. So please watch this video. The book of Daniel. The story set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem, and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David, Daniel, who's later named Belteshazzar, and his three friends, who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. This design shows how chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent section, but it also highlights the importance of chapters 2 and 7 for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they're really wise and capable, and they're recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse, and they choose faithfulness to the Torah, and it puts them in danger. But God delivers them, and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. After this begins the Aramaic section, which you'll see has this really cool symmetrical design. So first, the king of Babylon has a dream that, it turns out, only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal, and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms, and the head is Babylon. But then a huge rock comes flying in, and it shatters the statue, and it becomes this huge mountain. Now, this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book, and this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon, and they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day, God's kingdom will come and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends who refused to bow down and worship a huge idol statue, which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And so the friends are persecuted, they're thrown into a fiery furnace, but God delivers them from death and they're exalted by the king who now acknowledges their God as the true one. After this come a pair of stories about two Babylonian kings, the father, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar. They're both filled with pride because of their imperial power. And so, like in chapter 2, God warns them both through dreams and then visions, which, also like chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret. He says that both kings are to humble themselves before God, and both kings arrogantly resist. So Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with madness. He becomes like a beast in the field. But then he humbles himself before God, and his humanity returns to him. He's restored as king. This is in contrast with his son, 
Belshazzar, who doesn't humble himself before God, and he's assassinated that very night. Now, these two stories draw this imagery from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8, where humans are depicted as the royal image of God. He's given them authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air on behalf of God, who is the world's true king. But when human kingdoms forget that, when they rebel and make themselves and their power into a god, they become less than human, like violent beasts who will face God's justice. Which brings us to chapter 6, the pair of chapter 3. And this time it's Daniel who's being persecuted because he refuses to pray and worship the king as a god. And so like the friends, he's sentenced to death and he's thrown into a lion's den. But God delivers him from the beasts and like the friends, the king exalts Daniel and praises his god. Which brings us to chapter 7. It's the pair of chapter 2 and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until an angelic messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast identified as a really evil empire. And it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And there's one specific horn who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the Son of Man, who's an image for both God's covenant people, but also for their king from the line of David. But then all of a sudden, God, who's called the Ancient of Days, comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the super beast and he exalts the Son of Man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. We can look back now and see how all of these stories in the first half fit together. The three stories of faithfulness despite persecution, these are meant to offer hope to God's suffering people among the nations. But they suffer because human kingdoms have rebelled against God and have become beasts. And so these visions encourage patience, that God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom and rule over our world and vindicate his suffering people. But it raises the question about when God is going to do that, and that that's what these final three visions set out to explore. In chapter 8, Daniel has another vision about the final two beasts of chapter 7, but this time they're symbolized by a ram, who we're told is the image of the empire of the Medes and Persians, and then by a goat, who's an image of ancient Greece. And out of the goat come a whole bunch of horns, one of which symbolizes the evil king from chapter 7. And we're told more about him, that he will attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God and defile the temple with idols. However, in the end, he will be destroyed by God who will exalt his people and his kingdom. Now, by chapter 9, Daniel is very puzzled, especially as to when all of this is going to take place. And so he consults the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, where God said that Israel's exile would only last 70 years. So for Daniel, the 70 years is almost up. And so he asks God to fulfill his promise soon. But an angel comes and informs him that Israel's sin and rebellion has continued. And so their time of exile and oppression will continue on seven times longer than Jeremiah envisioned. Daniel is deeply disturbed by this, and he has one final vision. We're shown the same sequence of kingdoms. It's Persia, then Greece, and Alexander the Great, followed by lesser kings, all leading up to this final king of the north, who will invade Jerusalem, set up idols in the temple, and exalt himself above God. But then, all of a sudden, this king comes to ruin. 
Now, there's been endless debate about what all of these visions refer to. Many see a clear connection to the exploits of the Syrian king Antiochus in the 160s BC. He killed many faithful Jews in Jerusalem and set up idols in the temple. Others think it points forward to the Roman Empire's role in the execution of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And still others think it will be fulfilled in future events that have yet to happen when Jesus will return. Now the problem is that the symbols and the numbers, they don't quite match any of these views perfectly. But it opens up the possibility that in a sense they are all right. The book of Daniel has been designed to offer hope to all future generations of God's people. It did so in the days of Antiochus' empire, and it has ever since. This is why Jesus could use imagery from Daniel to describe and confront the oppressive leaders he confronted in Jerusalem. This is why John, the visionary who wrote the Revelation, could adapt Daniel's visions and apply them to Rome of his day and also all future oppressive empires. And so the point of Daniel is that all generations of readers can find here a pattern and a promise. It's a pattern that human beings in their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power, when they redefine right and wrong, and don't acknowledge God as their true king. But Daniel also holds out a promise that one day God will confront the beast. He will rescue his world and his people by bringing his kingdom over all nations. And so for every generation, this book speaks a message of hope that should motivate faithfulness. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. Well, did you get that? <laughs> uh, it's a great overview of the book of Daniel, and we begin a series called Courageous Hope together in this wonderful Old Testament book. But if you want to look at that again or share that with others, you could just go to YouTube and type Bible Project Daniel, and you'll get that summary video. It's a great thing they've been doing. They've got one on every book of the Bible. They've got it on themes within Scripture, characters within Scripture. It's, it's a great way to understand the big picture, not get lost in the weeds. If you want to open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, or you can go there on your mobile device, a Bible app you might have. We'll be looking at Daniel chapter 1 together. And we're going to go back to that 6th century BC, about 500 plus years before Jesus walked on planet Earth. And Daniel and his three friends are taken captive after Jerusalem is destroyed. It had been sieged by the Babylonians for 30 months. It was a horrific experience. The prophet Jeremiah wrote about the, the horror of what happened in Jerusalem when they were surrounded by the Babylonians for almost three years. And he writes that book, Lamentations, to help us understand the agony that they went through. We believe that the majority of people were killed in Jerusalem. There were about 4,000 who were picked up and carried to Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, and uh, the empire that controlled the then-known world was Babylon, and these men and uh, these individuals are going to be used as advisors to the king, some of them, especially the four that are mentioned, Daniel and his three friends. And we'll see uh, just where they were on this, this life-changing experience, and today we're going to talk about when your world changes forever. When everything about your world changes forever, what do you do? Sometimes change comes and it's the stuff that's hard. It's death, it's a pandemic, it's, it's a political strife, it's, it's the word cancer used for someone you love for the first time, or the word divorce entering into a conversation in your marriage. It's the stuff that just shakes our world and we come to that place not because we wanna be there, 
but because circumstances have brought us there. And as we look forward down the path, there's just this huge fog. You kind of see it maybe goes down, maybe goes that way. Maybe there's a twist or turn, but you don't know. And with that uncertainty and that unknown, your world has changed forever. For others, it's maybe a new job opportunity. Maybe it's a move. Maybe it's a completion of your education or you're at a certain level where it's actually a a great place. You're full of hope. But even when you look forward, full of hope, there's still uncertainty and unknown ahead because your world has changed and, and you've seized an opportunity, but there's still stuff you don't know that's coming. We're going to talk about when your world changes forever. And we're going to see that when your world changes forever, God gives you courageous hope as you embrace his plan for you, his plan to use you in the unknown, the uncertain, and even the unwanted journey ahead. As you stand looking forward on the horizon and things are all fogged in and you'd love to know two months from now, a year from now, three years from now, how things are going to work out. How do you deal with that today when your world has changed forever? Even if it's because of fear or because of great hope, but there's uncertainty, what do you do? Well, God wants to give us courageous hope. And that happens as we embrace the fact that he has a plan for us. Even when we don't know what that plan is, he has a plan to use us, to work in and through us. Now, when we're on the edge of something and we're looking forward, we want to know what that is. Lord, give me all that and I'll trust you. And he says, I've got a plan, trust me. That's not easy. But we'll see in this passage how important it is for us when our lives change in such drastic and and sometimes wonderful ways, but with so many uncertainties on the horizon. We're going to see today Three things that we need to do in response to our lives as they've changed, either out of great fear and difficulty or because of great hope and and wonderful opportunities ahead. The first one is found in the first eight verses of Daniel chapter one. And it's this, that when your world changes forever, be faithful. Be faithful. Don't give up on God. Don't give up on God. Your impulse when the circumstances come or maybe a new opportunity is just to leave God out or push God to the fringes of your life. Don't give up on God. Let's look at Daniel chapter one, verses one through eight. I'll be reading throughout the book as we study the book over the next several weeks. I'm gonna use the New Living Translation. When you read large chunks of narrative, I think this translation is very helpful in reading them and getting the story. Daniel chapter one, verse one. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. 
Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. That's an important thing there. Here they are taken away from their homes, their, their, their homes destroyed. They perhaps saw their families killed before their very eyes. They're taken captive. They are the youngest, the brightest, and now the king of the world, the emperor of the world at that time, Nebuchadnezzar, wants to train them over three years and make them a part of his team of advisors and wise individuals to guide him. And they thought if they picked up wisdom from all over the world, it would make them more powerful and give them more insight into how to conquer more of the land and more peoples, people groups. And so these four young men are in this place, Daniel and his three friends. They've been uprooted, everything has changed forever. And it's interesting, in verse eight we read, Daniel determined that he would not defile himself. It's talking about the kind of food that he would eat. You see, the Babylonians would have wonderful food. They would have all the foods that were available to anyone in the world at that time. But of course, scientifically, they didn't understand that certain meats could have worms and other difficulties. And God's dietary laws that he had given in the Torah, the law of the Old Testament to the Jewish people, it had certain restrictions. And we know now that there were a lot of those things that were restricted that would keep them healthy and strong. And so Daniel... He remembers the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he chooses not to give up on God, even in this one choice, he and his three friends. You gotta be faithful, don't give up on God. The first thing you have to know if you're gonna be faithful is that you have to understand what the world will use to push you away from God. The world and Satan trying to use the voices of the world around us will try to push us away from God. They'll try to drive a wedge between us and our Savior, Jesus. What are some of the things that will naturally be used to drive us away from God? Well, verses one through three, it's misery. It just simply says they were brought to Babylon as captives. What a summary of the horror they had gone through for three years. And then when Nebuchadnezzar's armies broke through the walls and all uh, of the horror just got worse. Now they're captives in a foreign land, never to see their homeland or their families again. Misery. Sometimes we just say, life is so awful, I just have no time for God anymore. Secondly is flattery. Flattery. The king says, select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. Maybe they were told as they were selected, you're the brightest, you're the best, you're good-looking, you're, you're healthy. The king wants to use you in his corps of advisors. There's flattery, and sometimes uh, folks flatter us or, or the enticements of this world kind of draw us because of, uh, of the words they speak that can draw us away from the Lord. Then opportunity. Not every opportunity is good. Sometimes there are opportunities, even, even things that aren't morally wrong, but they're an opportunity that can distract us from our walk with God or what he has for us. In the second half of verse four, train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. They're gonna give, be given in these three years the best education anybody could get in that day. Opportunity sometimes can draw us away from God. The next one is luxury. The next tool that will be used by the world around us to draw us away from God is luxury, convenience, and comfort. Verse 5 says, The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. 
There would be no better food prepared anywhere on the planet than the kitchens of Nebuchadnezzar in that day. And they're going to eat from the same kitchens that he eats from. Talk about convenience and comfort. Now, when I was in college, that was not what the food was like. I went to a small Christian college, and you know, about every four or five days, they would just announce that the meal was shepherd's pie. You know what it was? You could tell as you cut into it. It never really was the same thing. It was whatever was left over from the last four or five days. They just put it into this thing and called it shepherd's pie. But that is not what Daniel and his friends are going to get. They're going to get the best that is offered. Sometimes luxury and convenience can cause us to drift away from our God. Well, we've got to be faithful. Don't give up on God. And then finally, identity. Identity. The world would try to have us use an identity or a label that makes us distinct and different and try to make that higher than that we are the followers of Jesus Christ, which is our greatest identity, is that we are Christ and He we are Christ's and He is ours. In verse six, the four men, their names are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then they are renamed in verse seven to Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They moved from Hebrew names. What did their Hebrew names mean? Their Hebrew names all had the name for Jehovah or God in them. Uh, Their names meant God is my judge, Jehovah is gracious, who is like God, Jehovah is my helper. The Babylonians wanted them to forget their identity to Jehovah God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the Babylonians gave them names that each one of their names included a pagan Babylonian God in that name. Protector of Bel's treasure, the command of Aku, Bel and Aku are pagan gods. Who is like Shaq? Not the Shaq you're thinking of. This is talking about the pagan Babylonian god Shaq, the servant of Nego. Look at the contrast here. They go from these Hebrew names that point to their God. The Babylonians say, no, 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 that's not your identity. This is your identity. You've got to understand that there are a lot of things in this broken, fallen world that are designed to draw us away from our relationship with God. But we've got to be faithful. Don't give up on God. Secondly, not only do you understand the tools that can be used to draw us away from God, but then we've got to understand uh, what, can, what we can use, what you can use to keep yourself close to God. Daniel makes it really clear in verse 8, he he would prefer not to eat the food of the Babylonians, that he thinks he can be healthier and better, and he can, this is one small way he can keep his, his commitment to God by choosing, if they allow him, not to eat their food, but to eat vegetables and water instead. That speaks a lot for his discernment, his discernment. He doesn't bring all the law and say, hey, I got to live by all of this, or or this isn't going to work out for me. There's discernment. With discernment, you choose your battles as wisely as possible. You choose your battles as wisely as possible. Notice he's, what he's not saying here. He's not bringing all these different issues in. He chooses one area where he thinks that, that they can shine and be stronger because of their commitment and faithfulness to God, and he chooses to make that an area where he's going to kind of put a line in the sand. Discernment. We need discernment to... Choose our battles in a culture that is changing and shifting. Someone who says, choose your battles wisely because if you fight them all, you'll be too tired to win the really important ones. How true, huh? Are you fighting every battle or are you choosing those things that are important in this moment, in this time? 
We need discernment so that we can lean into God. And then it takes determination. Verse 8, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. There's determination. Live your life as faithfully as possible. Not only need discernment, choose your battles as wisely as possible, but we need determination, faithfulness, a commitment to God that we'll be as faithful as we possibly can be with the circumstances and the time and, and all the things around us. James 4.8 says that we are to be determined and we make a choice, and the choice is to lean into God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now again, when you're going through a time of uncertainty, maybe it's because you're full of fear of the unknown. You, you'll you'll want to draw away from God, but that's when you need to draw into him. Or perhaps it's, it's out of hope with some wonderful changes, but there's still some uncertainty on the horizon, and maybe you just want to step back and take things into your own hand to make sure that it all works out. No, that's when you want to lean into God, draw close to God, and he will draw close to you. John 6, 37, Jesus said, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. Jesus will never push you away as his child. He's saying, if you come to me, I will hold you close. We've got to be determined to live as faithfully to Christ as possible. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel when the road is uncertain, even unwanted ahead. That's when you, you remain faithful to God. Don't give up. One of the images that I love when it comes to don't give up is the image of the stork that's trying to swallow the frog, but the frog is holding onto the, stro the stork's throat, and, and they've kind of reached an impasse, right? But neither one wants to give up. We need a determination that says, no matter what, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to lean in and trust my God. When your world changes forever, be faithful. Don't give up on God. Secondly, be kind. Don't lash out at others. Be kind. Don't lash out at others. Some of the worst moments in my own personal life or in my professional ministry life have been times when I've lashed out at others. You can hurt sometimes the people that are closest to you. You can hurt your witness to a world that's watching when we lash out. Daniel and his friends, and I love how he interacts on their behalf with the Babylonian leaders that are put over them. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8 again, the last part. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat the unacceptable foods. Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, I am afraid of my lord the king who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Daniel spoke with the attendant who'd been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. Now look at his attitude. He could have lashed out and said, there's no way we're ever eating this meat. We're going on a hunger strike. He could have called them some names. He could have been rude and crude. But instead, you have the spirit of where he's being kind, even those who represent unkindness toward them, cruelty toward them. How do you do that? Well, number one, humbly ask, don't demand. Humbly ask, don't demand. 
In verse eight, Daniel asked the chief of staff for permission. With humility, he approached and asked. He didn't demand. He wasn't rude, he wasn't crude. And there is this mindset now in our world that if you're really a faithful Christian and you're dealing with the values of this world compared to the values of Scripture, then you're going to be mean and cruel and demanding and loud and obnoxious. And, and that's how we're going to make a difference for Jesus in this world. Baloney. Daniel gives us an example. Jesus lived out the example. The New Testament writers give us the teachings regarding what our spirit should be in this world, even to those in authority over us we disagree with and, and have a whole different value set compared to theirs. 1 Peter 2.13, Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Your boss, government leaders. Then as this passage goes on in 1 Peter 2.17, he says, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. We're not to be demanding and rude and obnoxious online or in person. We're to be the ones who are kind, not lashing out at others. Humbly ask, don't demand. That's a great example from Daniel. Secondly, graciously suggest, don't push graciously suggests don't push. Now, it doesn't mean we don't have our convictions. Verse eight says he determined that he wasn't gonna eat this food, but he graciously suggests rather than being pushy or forceful. In verse 12, we read, please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. Just give us 10 days. Try it for 10 days and see what happens. We're talking three years of training. We're asking in the first 10 days of those three years that you just let us eat what our God says we should eat and see if we aren't healthier and stronger and better able to serve the king, the emperor, Nebuchadnezzar. We have to be careful with our words that we don't get pushy and abrasive. We can suggest and come alongside and help and encourage those in leadership. We can lead up well. Sometimes when we've been hurt, we think that we can heal ourselves by wounding others, that we can lash out at others. And I know I've been guilty of that, and it just causes pain to those we care about the most, and it's such a dangerous and, and damaging thing. Someone has said, no one heals themselves by wounding others. But oh, how we try to kind of make ourselves feel better by making others feel bad. That's such a dangerous thing to do. Proverbs 16, 24 says, Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. You know, have you ever had honey right out of the honeycomb? Oh, it's the best honey. Before it's all been jarred up and separated. And when it comes right with the honeycomb, there's something about that kind of honey. There's something so sweet about it. And the scriptures say that's what gracious words are. Even when we don't feel like it, even when we have disagreements with others, I'm sure Daniel didn't feel like it. I'm sure he really wanted to push back on these people and be obnoxious and rude, but he's doing what he can do in this world that has changed to be kind to others and not lashing out. My son John has been in this week and he's ha he has a new puppy and he went to a wedding this weekend, so we have the puppy and we have our two older dogs, one is 13, one's eight, and then we've got this seven-month-old puppy. Well, the two older dogs just give me these looks every now and then this weekend, like, really? Really, this is, we've been with you this long and this is what you're gonna do to us? 
And, you know, the puppy's bouncing around, and it's one of these uh, Italian greyhounds, so, you know, I don't even know it's beside the chair, and all of a sudden it's up, and it's on the chair with me, and, and it does that to the other dogs. And our older dog, she has this way of when, even when I come home, and she's been this way since she was a puppy, her name is Lucy, that she just will, you think she's burying her teeth to you, but she smiles. And even when there are times she's uncomfortable, and I say, it's okay, Lucy, then she'll, like, smile at me, and... And she's been smiling at me a lot this weekend because <laughs> the dog will do things. I'll say, it's okay, Lucy. And she'll look at me like, yeah. And like one, lip, one side of her lip goes up, the other doesn't because she's not so sure. But then the second oldest, Mabel, is part chihuahua. And Mabel just walks around all the time with a chip on her shoulder. She doesn't need a puppy around to have this chip on her shoulder. And so she's just been on edge all weekend. She's just, if she thinks the puppy is awake and not napping anymore, she's looking, she's growling, she's sneering, she's just ready. And some of us get that way. It's embarrassing when we get that way. It's, it's, it's hard on us, hard on the people we care about the most we get that way. But Daniel wasn't that way. And we're not to be that way. When our world has changed so much and there's uncertainty ahead, whether it's out of fear or even it's great hope for the future, but it's just still uncertain. We've got to trust that God has a plan. He may not have revealed the whole plan to us, but he has a plan. He's going to use us, and so we've got to be faithful. Don't give up on God. We've got to be kind. Don't lash out at others. Maybe this week you need to spend a little time asking those around you, how my words been lately? How my words online been? Put that on Facebook or, or Instagram. Just say, you know, hey, how's my attitude been online the last few months? See what folks say. Maybe if you've been struggling with your words and lashing out and hurting people that are close to you that you care about, maybe you should memorize Proverbs 16:24 and be reminded of the, the power of gracious words to bring healing uh, and sweetness to the soul and to the bones. Thirdly, We've got to be faithful. Don't give up on God. We've got to be kind. Don't lash out at others. And thirdly, be patient. Don't give up on yourself. Be patient. Let God work in you. Philippians 1.6 says that the one who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. We've been singing recently that song that in the line of that song, My Testimony, it says, uh, if I'm not dead, you're not done. We are constantly a work in progress, being molded and shaped and made into the image of Christ through the circumstances and situations of our life. We, we've got to not give up on ourselves and what God wants to do in and through us and his plan, even though we might not be able to see what that entails, we've got to trust that he has a plan to use us in the days and months and years ahead. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 1. The story continues in verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom, and God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meaning of visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. They became advisors to the king. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained in the royal service 
until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. Now, this appears to be in contrast, this statement in verse 21, to what's said in Daniel 10.1, that Daniel served until the third year of King Cyrus. Uh, the, the emphasis here is not how long he actually served, but to he served from the beginning of this time of exile, the 70 years of captivity, he begins to serve. And the first year of King Cyrus is when the first Jews go back to Jerusalem under Ezra and the captivity begins to come to an end. So the point is, he served the entire time of judgment that God had on his people in the nation, on the nation of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. So he serves this long time. So you've got three time periods that are given in this this first chapter of Daniel. You've got the, the 10 days that he says, let us eat this food, and now it's been proven that they were healthier and stronger after 10 days, so the attendant kept feeding them for the three years. So there's the three years of education. It's all completed. And Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that there's something special about these men, and it, it, the, the, the special aspect to Daniel and these friends is that Daniel himself serves for seven decades in this role. All these foreign kings, he's faithful to his God, and yet he is of use and service to them. How incredible. you got to be patient. It might be 10 days, it might be three years, it might be seven decades that God's going to be doing a work that you can't even see that's coming. you got to be patient with God. Give God time, first of all, to work in you. Give God time to work in you. Now that, for God to work in you, begins with knowing Christ as your Savior. If you're here and you haven't put your faith in the one who died, was buried, and was raised for you, today where you are, you can come to faith in Jesus and have a relationship with God where God will forgive you, not on, on the good things you've done because you can never be good enough for God's approval or acceptance. Jesus did everything. When you put your faith in Jesus, then God makes you his child. And then he can begin to really work in you and through you and you can find hope and strength and courage for the days ahead. But the beginning of that work of God is to be saved by him, to be rescued by him, to be made his child through faith in his son. If you're here in the room and you have some questions about that or you want to share with me that you came to Jesus today, uh, I'll be out on the patio. We have some others out there on our team who can help you. Uh, see me there. If you're joining us online and uh, you can't meet me out there after the service, then I'd encourage you to text the name Jesus to the number below me on the screen. Those of you in the room can do that as well. If you text the name Jesus to the number below me on the screen, we'll send you a link that'll help you understand what it means to know Jesus, to walk with Jesus. And you can begin to see God work in you. And so you can just text just the name Jesus in the message to that number and we'll follow up with you and make sure that you have the tools needed to move forward in your walk with Christ. Because that's where the work of God begins. It begins in knowing Christ as Savior. And then he begins to work in us in the difficult circumstances, the, the wonderful highlights of life, when there's, there's fear that seems to grip us, when there's hope that, that, that things are going to be better. God meets us in those moments and, and he works in us. In verse 15, it says, at the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished. In verse 17, God gave these men unusual aptitude. He gave them the abilities they needed to understand every aspect of literature and wisdom. He gave Daniel the ability to interpret dreams and visions. Be patient with God. Let God work in you over time. Don't rush God. Some things might take 10 days. Some things might take three years. Some things might take decades for God to do in your life. And his pace with you will be different than his pace with me. Allow God to grow you. And in that, you have to trust his timing to be perfect. 
You may want it now, or you may want it three years from now. Trust God, do the next right thing, and trust God that his timing is perfect. A young woman I've been following on Twitter, a Christian woman, says some pretty incredible things. I love some of her statements. Her name is Whitney Nichols, and she read this from her. Some of the best things God will do in your life won't be on your schedule. They won't be on your schedule. It'll be his timing, and you gotta trust his timing to be perfect. Give God time to work in you. And secondly, give God time to work in others through you. He wants to use me. He wants to use you to make an impact on other people. Give God time to work in others through you. Verse 18, when the training period ordered by the king was completed, three years, verse 19, the king talked with them, and no one impressed them as much as the king. Verse 20, he found them 10 times more capable. Verse 21, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. He's there for decades. As he is patient and allows God to work in his life, and he's, he's patient, giving God time to work in his life, then he is patient in allowing God to work in others through his life. That's not always easy. When we have situations with others or difficulties with others or challenges, it's, we think, okay, what is God doing in this? What's he doing in this conversation? What's he doing with this relationship? What's he doing in this setting? I don't get it. You gotta trust his purposes to be wise. You have to trust his purposes to be wise. Just as much as you, as you have to trust his timing to be perfect, you have to trust his purposes to be wise. He knows why he's taking you on that twist, and now you've made that turn, but the road ahead is still foggy. There's still an uncertainty, maybe even an unwanted aspect to the journey ahead. You've got to trust his purposes in the twists and turns and ups and downs of your life. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, when you, said, when you can't see his hand, trust his heart. When you can't see his hand, trust his heart. His purposes are pure and good. He's weaving something in your life you may not understand. But when everything in your world changes, you just gotta be faithful, don't give up on God. You gotta be kind, don't lash out at others. We shouldn't be the rudest, crudest people. And thirdly, be patient. Don't give up on yourself, let God work. Let God work in you, let God work through you into the lives of others. When everything changes in your world forever, God gives you courageous hope as you embrace that, yes, he has a plan. You may not know what it is, but he has a plan for you as you move forward. What you need to do is trust that he has that plan, even if it hasn't been realized or revealed to you yet, and trust him in that uncertainty because he knows He's been there. He knows what you're going to go through. He has a plan for you. Are you embracing God's plan to use you in the journey ahead? Or have you gotten so trapped and everything changing that you just can't see beyond your current circumstances and the current situation you're in? We live back east. We would, every couple of years, go to uh, Florida, go to Orlando, go to Disney World, and one time we were visiting Epcot. My youngest daughter, who will graduate from college next week, Megan, was about four years old when this particular visit. And Epcot, of course, has that iconic big ball, right? That beautiful ball, and it's even more beautiful at night. It's just such a beautiful, beautiful, uh, uh, just stands out on the horizon. It's such a tall and magnificent item there and landmark. But inside is... Um, a ride called Spaceship Earth, and it takes you through the technology history of humanity, and you, you weave up and through, and it's not that 
bad a ride at all. Sometimes you're going backwards, it's dark, and they're telling you stories. And I, I know it's not that bad because I get pretty motion sick on the carousel at Disneyland, and I don't get motion sick on planet Earth or spaceship Earth. And uh, we were in the ride, and it broke down. It was kind of dark, and you hear the voice, please remain seated. The ride will begin again in a moment. And we were sitting there, and kind of our family were probably six or seven of us, eight of us with my in-laws, and we were in a couple of different rows, and I'm in the middle row with Megan, and they say it again, please remain seated. The ride will begin in a moment. It's dark, and, you know, the ride stopped, and everything stopped, the music, everything, and, and she starts saying, we're doomed. <laughs> Here's this four-year-old, we're doomed. It's over. We'll never get out of here. We're doomed. And so, you know, her siblings are trying to say, no, Megan, it's okay. You know, big brother, big sister are trying to say, it's okay, you know, because outside of this, there's a whole amusement park. Even if this breaks down and they make us leave here, we'll go ride another ride. There's more out there. And she just started lashing out at them. No, we're doomed. It's over. We'll never get out of here. And she starts getting louder and we're concerned. Others are going to hear this. And uh, she just keeps making this noise and just, she just is ready to throw in the towel because she can't see outside the dark place where we are and she couldn't see outside and didn't know there's life out there. There's a lot of stuff happening and it's not all this. And there are times when our world changes so much, either through difficulty or through great opportunity and hope, but, but there's uncertainty on the horizon and we say, we're doomed, we're doomed. And we don't see there's life beyond that bloom that we're caught in. And we need to trust our God that he has a plan, even if we don't know what it is. And as we embrace the fact that he has a plan for us to get us through the fog, the twists and turns that we can't see right now, he gives us hope. He gives us courage. He gives us courageous hope. Be faithful. Be kind. Be patient. Embrace that God has something in store for you even when you can't see what it is. Would you pray with me, please? Thank you, Father, for Daniel's example. Sometimes our gut reaction is to give up on you, to lash out at others, give up on ourselves, just throw in the towel, give up on how you can use us, how you can work through us, how you can work in us. Help us, Lord, to be faithful when it isn't easy, to be kind when we, we just want to be rude and, and caustic. And help us, Father, to be patient. Sometimes it'll be 10 days of patience, sometimes three years of patience, sometimes decades of patience and, and living and serving and being in environments and spaces where we're just so uncomfortable, but we can walk with you and trust you and you have something so much better for us in that. I pray for those who maybe are on the edge of just some uncertainty that's scary, those who are on the edge of uncertainty because of wonderful opportunities, changes that have come. I pray that we'd all be able to say, you know what, we're resting in the one who knows already what we're going to face as we step into the fog ahead. May we trust you. May we walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.